Hey there. Welcome to More Than a Crush, a podcast about love. Each week, we pick a theme and share a story about one of the many facets of love. We are your hosts. I'm Marion Bolognese, an artist and designer recording from New York. And I'm Kim Berry, a therapist broadcasting from New Jersey. How, how are your ups and downs on the... They're okay. On the screen. They're looking good? Oh, I think so. All right. I mean, you're lo- you're looking good. Hello. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. So second season, episode woot, woot. two. This is so exciting. Right, Kim? Yes. Deuces. Peace signs on both yeah. sides. Kim, do you, would you care to share today's theme with us? I would love to. Today's <laughs> theme is Home is Where the Heart Is with special oh, interview. Thank you. Natalie Joachim. Yay. So secretly, we did record this episode. The Some of the content from this episode, our interview with our beloved Natalie. Natalie, we love you. Uh, Joachim. Joachim. Me, um, a couple months ago. It was a really special interview for so many reasons, but also because Marion, we're in the we were in the same room. We were in the same room. We had COVID tested, and we we saw each other in person for the first time the for the entire quarantine since February. That's right. That is right. Magical. Yeah. So some exciting stuff. Really, really beautiful interview today with Natalie. Can't I cried. Yeah, I cried the first time I heard the story while she was performing, which is why we asked her to do it again. Because we are gluttons for emotional punishment, apparently. (laughs) No, it's it's a a beautiful story. Yes. And we wanted, of course, to share it with all of you. Crying is not necessary or probably perhaps your response. Let us know if it is. Whatever your natural response is, is the correct one. Yeah. I'm just somebody who does cry a lot. (laughs) I have cr- I've cried at commercials on more than one occasion. That's just that's just me. Maybe you are not one of those people. Regardless, it is a fantastic interview if I do say so myself and we hope that you enjoy it. Yeah. So without further ado, here she is. Natalie Joachim. It's really nice to be here with our good, wonderful friend. Friend of the podcast. Yes, friend in real life, friend of the podcast. A few years ago, actually Kim and I both went to go see Natalie perform. Can you pronounce your album? Yeah, say your album for me. Fum Dai Okay, Fum Dai You were speaking about how you were inspired by her and by the women in Haiti, but you had not released your album. I think that you had just put together some music and it later came to be your Grammy-nominated album. Marion, I think you're talking about when I had a performance. It was a solo set Right. And that was at Roulette. Resonant Bodies Festival, it was called. Yes, that's exactly right. I want Mm -hmm. Kim to be able to hear this beautiful story. I was weeping in the audience. Great. I can't wait to weep. I get to cry in front of my friends again. This is always always a bonus. I mean, I was crying in front of my friends. I don't know. Who, I have no idea who was there with me. And, um, <laughs> and uh, strangers. I love a good, beautiful story. For that show, I made some like special solo arrangements to perform live that night. And it's interesting because I don't really, it was a sort of like abstracted version of, of the show and of the al- of what became the album. So, Right. It seemed different to what came later in my head, but Mm -hmm. I'm not very musically inclined whatsoever. So 
I could rearrange things in any sort of strange way. So Natalie, do you want to share anything about how that album came to be? Your grandmother, Haiti in general, your relationship with Haiti? What can I tell you about this album is very connected to my heart. I thought of the concept of the album shortly after the passing of my grandmother on my mother's side, who I had a very close relationship with and a very musically centered relationship for it being a non-musical relationship, really. But yeah, so my grandmother and I had a very close relationship from the time I was really little. She lived with us in the United States for a little while. And we just, you know, I think for sure, if I think about it now, really honestly, she was one of the first people in my life and one of very few people in my life to just sort of like completely accept you as you are. And just, she exuded so much joy and love for everyone who she engaged with that it was easy to feel like you could be wholly yourself and not have to like assimilate in any way, which I think was, was funny also. Cause it's like, as a kid, all you want to do is kind of like fit in, right. especially like my parents being immigrants and having accents and we never ate the same food as everybody else. Like you're just trying to like fit in and be like, right. You're like, please mom, why must we have, can we just order pizza when my friends come over? Cause like, that's what they yeah. <laughs> that's can what I not have. I can totally relate to this. Can I not have a cow tongue sandwich to bring to school? <laughs> I'm sick. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, but my grandmother was really just sort of being like, oh, you got cow tongue? That's great. Like, she's just a person who embraced you wholly, you know? And she was also one of the, the first people to encourage me to sort of be uninhibited in my musical expression. Just music was our way of sort of telling each other stories and sharing time with one another and I didn't know until I worked on this project that that's really kind of central to Haiti and our cultural practice. You know what I mean? Like so much of what we share and so much of our history and so much of our, for sure, our music is wrapped up in this oral practice of real, you know, like so much of what we have is documented orally. And so storytelling is a big part of who we are and what we do. It's a big part of our rootedness in religious faith and faith faith in, in general, but also our way of sort of weaving in song is an interesting way to get to, to like solidify that practice of making sure that the stories continue to be told. And one of the easiest ways to do that is through song. And so now in retrospect, I realized that she was really bringing me into this like centuries long practice. That's really how our people have been sort of sharing our stories and sharing our music for a very, for a very long time. But as a kid, I just thought it was fun to be able to make up songs and make up stories and also tell her who I was like through us making songs together and her being able to do that too. So I have these like very like palpable memories with her of like, cooking or doing laundry or 
you know, kind of just sitting, especially, you know, in when she was much older, just sitting in her yard together in Haiti. And we would just be like sitting in the sun, sort of laughing and sharing songs and talking and really being able to be kind of open with one another. Can I ask you a question? So like over time, did that evolve? Like when you were a very small child, what did those songs look like? Were they, I mean, like I'm just really trying to understand mm-hmm. as part of the culture, is it songs that people pass down that are sung amongst the whole community or specific to your family? And do you remember any of them from early on? Yeah, I mean, I think a combination of both. Like her song that's on my record is definitely a song of hers that she made up mm-hmm. about herself and her own life. But, you know, so so many of the other songs we sang were like familiar tunes of other songs that she would make up new words to, but also teaching me songs that she taught my mom when she was little and that her mom had taught her when she was little too that a lot of Haitian people know and have, have come to know. Some of those have become, some of those are sort of old folkloric songs. Some of those are church hymns that she really, really loved. One of those might make its way to my next record, which is exciting. I think, you know, it was just a combination of both things. And she was really creative naturally. So it was, I think, you know, her way with song was actually quite, came to her quite naturally. Yeah. It was kind of so, an organic, like, song-making practice with, like, it was something that was coming, almost like it was playful. It was yeah. how you guys engaged with each other. I think mm-hmm. there's so much that's lost in our, between somewhere between our grandparents' generation and our generation as people try to become professionals and maybe even more so with technology and mm-hmm. how much access we have to everything that people were really, really, really good at things that weren't their profession necessarily, you know, that they didn't have any sort of monetary assignment to or even value, Mm -hmm. like in their minds, but they were incredibly talented. You know, it sounds like your grandmother had a lot of talent, but it wasn't necessarily important to her to become like a singer, you know, a writer, something like that for, yeah, like my grandmother was an incredibly good cook as so many people's grandmothers were, but like, that was just because she was really good at it. And know? passionate about it. And yeah. Part of tied to her culture. And tied to how she expressed love. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's the, that I would say is the core of it. Like it was, it was her way. I think also this relationship with grandparents is like so specific and not everyone gets to experience it, but anybody who has had a close relationship, it's just this beautiful bonus relationship you get in your life. You know, like mm-hmm. they're not the ones who are responsible. They're not necessarily the ones who are responsible for keeping you alive <laughs> or making sure that you are, you know, are like fed and clothed and not getting yourself into trouble. They're not like responsible for every breath that you take, but they have just themselves reach this point in their own life where they are seeing, they see the life in young people and little people in a brand new way. I'm sure that you guys see that with the relationship with your parents and your kids. It's just like, it seems to me that you reach a point in life when you're finally like able to take a deep breath and take a look at the magic of like what a little person is and the life that they bring and the light that they bring. And they get to just 
revel in that instead of being like, oh my God, am I, am I just, am I ruining you <laughs> with my, all of my own neuroses or whatever? They, they get to just be playful and loving with you and, and, and know you, also that you're taken care of, you know? Right, right. And when they're not your primary caregiver, I think it's like they themselves aren't bogged down with like the kind of like the responsibility and the chores that are associated with like the day to day. The exhaustion of having it be like yeah. a repetitive thing that's happening every day and the anxiety because they've yeah. also been there before and raised kids. Fresh mm-hmm. set of eyes, but like seasoned yeah. experience. And I don't know, like still to this day, like hanging out with old people is, you know, pre-pandemic, I had this fantasy that I would find time to like volunteer and a nursing home or just to be able to be like a companion, just a friend to like sit around and talk to old people. It's kind of incredible because, you know, they've just lived so much life. And for the most part, they're open to storytelling. They sort of revel in that in some way. I think it helps them hold on to a piece of themselves Mm -hmm. that may seem fleeting once you get past a certain age. I've noticed that with my own parents as they're getting older. They're down to sort of get lost in hours of telling you stories that you never really asked to hear, but you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's very relatable, yes. <laughs> it is. It's very reciprocal because there's a lot of benefit for the younger participant. And we see this even like kind of being created like programmatically. Nursery schools and like elementary schools where they like kind of bring in a local elementary school has this thing called Grand Pals where they have, well, in a pre-COVID era, where like older community members would come in and read with the pre-KK, first grade, like the young ones. And they would build this rapport. It was like a very beneficial to like all parties involved. So yeah, I mean, I think that even just like that age relationship piece, but you were, for you, this was also a cultural heritage component as well with your, with sure. your album and, and the relationship with your grandmother. Yeah. What did you call your grandmother, by the way? Meme Tata. She was, (laughs) she's pretty great. Anyways, I had just lost her 98 years old when she passed away. So she had lived a good long while. I had just had the thought of recording her voice back in like 2012. You know, on, on one of my visits to Haiti, I just was like, oh, she's getting pretty old and I feel like I don't have any record of her voice. And I would really love to be able to remember that because I don't know how much longer I'm going to have her voice. And it would be nice to be able to like, listen back to some recordings of her singing of us singing together, you know, just to have. So on like an iPhone (laughs) two, iPhone four, I know it was like a long time ago. It wasn't like a flip phone, but it was a while ago. I just made some voice recordings of her and her and I just sort of sitting and my dad there and all of us kind of, you know, in conversation with one another. She had this way of sort of talking to you. And then next thing you know, you're in song. And then next thing you know, you're back in conversation. She just had like a really natural way of weaving it in. There's also a lot of in that sort of like practice of, of music making, there's also a lot of just like call and response, like that she sort of teaches you a song and then you're singing it along with her. But then from there, there's, you know, you're moved on, moved on to the next part of the conversation. So I have all these like beautiful recordings of us sharing that time together. And I remember being in Haiti for the first time after she had passed away, there was this like, 
hole, this huge hole in the sonic landscape of my life and experience in Haiti that I felt that her voice was missing. But in a lot of ways, it also just opened up my ears to the fact that women's voices are so ever present that like it wasn't just me and my grandmother having that relationship, but it was, you know, mothers with their daughters and other grandmothers with their granddaughters throughout the countryside where my family lives, which is pretty remote, very far off the grid. And so you hear, you don't hear any city sounds, but you hear this like loudness of like being out in nature too, where it's like, you know, there are farm animals that are (laughs) super loud and roosters crowing. And, but you also hear these women's voices sort of like from farm to farm as they're going about their day, living their, living their life. And in a way I had never really noticed that about the sonic landscape of the place before. I really just had only connected that singing relationship to my grandmother and, and to our own family and in, in different ways. So started thinking strongly about the power of women's voices and how beautiful that was like as as a reality that this landscape would sound so deafeningly empty without these women's voices day to day i don't know i guess that got me down this rabbit hole of wanting to know more about women's voices in Haiti generally i could at the time i could only really think of one one female artist from Haiti, even though I knew a ton about Haitian music, but there just weren't that many women who were prominent. And so I got into this conversation with my parents about like, who were the women that you grew up listening to, like on the radio? You have to think like the radio when our kids, when our parents were kids was coming of age was huge. That's like how everybody knew everything was the radio. Who were they listening to? Who could they remember? And they could only come up with this list of a dozen or so women, which is crazy. Like over the past century of music making and recording, they could only think of a dozen or so women, which is wild. Like, if you know, it's like if you look at American history, it'd be like skipping from Ella Fitzgerald to like Beyonce. And it's like... Right. <laughs> a couple other people <laughs> crazy so I don't know I mean not that I took that as any kind of authority it wasn't surprising obviously we know societies are misogynistic so <laughs> there's you know a lack of prevalence of female voices everywhere across the world and also just that like doesn't mean that it was a fact because obviously the juxtaposition of people being famous as singers but then being in the countryside and like, I don't have any memory of men's voices. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? And I don't think any Haitian child actually does. You know, it's, it's definitely, many of us have, I think, this connection to our mother's voices, grandmother's voices, et cetera. It just made me curious about who the women were who made it through, who were memorable to my parents. That led me to these incredible stories of women who were phenomenal, you know, and, and revolutionary in their, in their, in each in their own way, they use their voices really to uplift the people of Haiti. Their use of their voices was in many cases, political, socially profound, 
and definitely an affront to authority, but also that all of their voices, all of their use of their voices were sort of rooted in this space of of love for Haitian people to to reconnect us to this thing, these voices that have connected us to nature and have connected us to one another and have connected us to a history that we've been like trying so deeply to preserve for so long that each of them like chose to use their voices for the greater good of Haitian people to preserve our language, to preserve our sense of self. That turned into this really interesting research project. But of course, through the course of, you know, a couple of years of of research, it also turned into me understanding that that's what I am doing with my own voice and my own artistic practice, not just with the people of Haiti, but really helping people to feel connected to one another, creating space for other voices and other stories and other histories and to be understood through my work. Also that it kept bringing back this like critical relationship with my grandmother, which was hard to deny, you know, like it started off as a project that was supposed to be about these other women and just like, let me put this history out there. But it became really hard to sort of separate myself from it. And also to know that my connection to this woman had everything to do with the love that my grandmother and I shared with one another that going back to my earliest memories of being like three years old, four years old, and sharing my voice with her, that's actually, in fact, the seed that connects me in reality in present day to all of these women. And that also has me sort of forever connected to our shared history and existence with one another. So, yeah. So nice that you got to have (laughs) have that much time with your grandmother. Like, even though, you know, it's never enough, it's it's nice that you got to have a relationship as a small child and that she got to, you know, see you become a woman and really, I'm sure it must have been very special for her to get to experience your talent and, you know, your, what you did with that. Yeah. And what a way to honor your grandmother and the relationship you had with and just and you, preserve it and per, yeah not only preserve that big piece of continuing her legacy and your family's legacy through your album it's grammy nominated that's no joke you did a fantastic beautiful piece of art through it yeah pressure for your whole family it's really wonderful yeah i'm sorry i thought you said that she was your mother's mother yes did she have a nice relationship with your father yeah so she had i mean what was my dad's pretty great my mom's pretty great too. She's listening. She listens to everything. You're great. I met your mom and she both, is great. Both your parents. Yes. yes. <laughs> I'm not close to meeting your dad, but I've heard all the fantastic humanitarian work that he has done yeah. in Haiti and, and otherwise. You, got, you come from good stock. Yes. yes. <laughs> I will say, you know, my parents are divorced. They've been divorced since I was very young. He has always been a voice to say, like, you got to imagine... My parents lived a whole life together, right? They met when they were young in their early 20s. They got married. By the time, they, you know, they sort of built this life, had two children in Haiti, built careers, supported each other through education, immigrated to this country together, rebuilt their entire lives, like went back to school could you imagine if you got to this point in your life and someone was, hi, it's so wonderful that you were super successful elsewhere. However, all of these degrees and accolades literally mean nothing. 
<laughs> so please redo them. And you may have to work several very low paying, degrading jobs in the process, but you know, you do you, we'll see you on the other side. And that they did that together. And, you know, I, I was admittedly a whoopsie <laughs> at the end, like towards the end of their relationship. But my dad has always respected the fact they, were, they will always be family. When my dad retired and moved back to Haiti, it was a priority for him. Once a week, he would go over to my grandmother's house and check on her and make sure she always had, you know, any medication that she needed, that she was being cared for, that she had people around her taking care of her and just checking in on her. And so they did have this like independent relationship with one another, which I also thought was really beautiful. Yeah, that's really it's nice. Not so many people that that get divorced and continue to have a strong relationship with their former in-law. in-law. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your mother-in-law. I feel like you, you always hear jokes about the mother-in-law and that he just continues. It sounds like they had a beautiful relationship in their own. Yeah. But it shows like the, the generosity of both of their spirits in a way because they were they both are just very warm and kind of caring people. And so they just continued to care for one another. So. I was going to say, just on making this album, she never got to hear any of it. It's kind of amazing because the people like in our little village who have heard the record all immediately light up when they hear her song because this was a song that they would hear her singing in her yard, just which I'll tell you also in a minute, I'll tell you about the meaning behind the song. <laughs> Are you laughing? Are you going to cry? I'm crying. I'm crying. <laughs> Not crying. Okay. Hysterical. <laughs> I'm laughing at myself for crying because it's so beautiful. Keep going. Keep going. I'm crying. Um, what I thought was really wonderful is that, like, my grandmother was my the first person in my life that I really lost that I had a close relationship with. It was different because we all saw, we knew it was coming. She's, you know, she's elderly, very old. So like every minute, extra minute we had with her was like this beautiful gift. It was fine. And we were all like ready for it. So it was, of course, very, very sad when we learned that she had passed. It also just, it was strange because I never really got to, I didn't really know how to process that kind of a loss that like one that felt okay with it. It's that you, you knew it was coming. You were prepared for it. You know that she went in a way that like wasn't painful for her. And that was happening at time, but I just needed my outside of my family. I felt like I re- really needed my own way to process her loss. And in so many ways, this album represents that because it was just in those, that short period of time after she was gone, I kind of embarked on this, journey of discovery of not just my relationship with her, but my relationship with Haiti. And like you said, this sort of like preservation of and connecting to my own family through my work in a way that I never have before. I'm a classical musician. My parents are Haitian. Could you be a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse <laughs> yeah. or a teacher would be great. They're like, they, you know, they're super supportive, but they also have no idea what I do actually. <laughs> and so they're like, that's so great. Like have, you know, most of the time they're like, that's wonderful. This was the first project where they were like really involved. So many of the connections I was able to make with the artists that I did end up meeting with and speaking to in real life only happened because my family 
actually was involved. Oh, I know so-and-so who was married to so-and-so's cousin, <laughs> the sister of this, this artist. So let's, so in a way, it was just like this beautiful, it was like, I got to continue to like live with her spirit and do something to really honor her. That I don't think I've, you know, I've never, I don't know that I will ever have the chance to do that again for someone. This beautiful sense of closure that she was lost from here in this moment, but she lives on now in a way. When you look up in Spotify, like I gave her a song credit that like my grandmother is credited for being a songwriter on the song, which she should be. That you see, you know, an article in the New York Times about the record and like, there's my grandmother like living and all living on in this way that she would have laughed so hard. (laughs) Because all of that stuff is like ridiculous to her anyway. You know what I mean? Like she she was not a person who even cared about any of that stuff. She cared about who you were, but yeah, she didn't I'm sure she would have cared that you took the time to do this for her. Yes. Yeah. For sure, for sure, for sure. And she would have loved it. And I'm sure we would have sung, you know, many, many of these songs are not songs that I sang with her. So to tell you about the meaning behind the song, which is also just tells you a lot about her. So my grandmother became a widow when my mom was very young. I actually don't know much about the love story between her and my grandfather. I don't know very much about him. That's maybe something I have to do, just sort of sit with my mom. My mom doesn't know that much either. You know, she was really raised by her grandmother and my grandmother. And so anyway, she became a widow quite young. She had a, a young child and she... Is your mother an only child? She has a brother that came from another relationship later, but my grandmother never remarried. And she didn't remarry by choice (laughs) because I think she really sort of was connected to the love that she had with my grandfather, which was like a very special part of her life. And then she just never really felt, she was also raised by a widow. So for her, it wasn't strange for a woman to sort of like take control of her life and pick herself up and make, make it work, which my grandmother, I have my great grandmother. I have all these incredible stories of what a badass she was, which was also very unheard of. I come from this line of badass women who were like, you know what? We did this thing. We don't really feel like we need to be messing around anymore. Here, I've got my kid. I've got, I got to survive. This is, I'm taking over this farm. The farm that my grandmother lived on had come from her side of the family. It was something that had been passed on and it was insane that it had been maintained and preserved and thrived through my great grandmother, which was unheard of at the time. And of course, now we're talking about like when my mom was born, talking about mid forties or early fifties when my, when my grandmother became a widow, it was unheard of for a woman to not have to rely on a man to survive. And so there were all these stories in the community about how she was probably insane and she probably, something's wrong with her or, you know, like that's why. (laughs) What's going on? But you know, it's like how all these things, it's like how like the myth of witches came to be. She became stigmatized, even though 
If I could tell you, like if you've ever seen any, Marion's seen some photos of my grandmother. Can you, maybe you've seen some like online that I posted. She just was the most exuberant, joyful. You could not be in a bad mood around her. I also just don't know anyone who knows her personally that has a single bad thing to say about her. Just that she was this beautiful spirit that really was like truly kind. I can't remember a moment where she was angry or upset or mean to someone or even remotely mean-spirited in a joking way. She just was a purely good person. I mean, obviously, I didn't know her whole life. I'm not saying she was perfect. I'm sure that she had her own discretions. I mean, I don't know. The story of my uncle coming to be is probably a story. I don't know the details. I'm not going to get involved. But it sounds like it was a joyful or joyous occasion. Exactly. You know, so business, her business. She was self-sufficient. Yeah. Yes. So people would call her, her, her maiden name was Ifeta Fortuma, was her last name, but her married name was Madame Bellegarde. And that was my grandfather's name that she had taken when they got married. And so people in the community know her as Madame Garde. They would just call her that for short. There would always be whispers around about her. And so in her song that she made up just one day to, when I'm like, how's it going? <laughs> and she's like, she starts singing this song for me. She's like, oh, let me tell you the song that's on the record. She's saying that she's judged. She's judged every day by sinners, by people who have committed way, way worse sins in their lives than she has by being an independent woman, which is her greatest sin, according to the public's eye, that she is judged. But at the end of the day, she knows she is not and she will not be judged by God. Her relationship with God was very important to her in her life. And in a way, I think like the modern day translation of that is just haters going to hate. You know? <laughs> it's just intimidating when you see somebody who doesn't, people want to be needed and they want to see that other people need a crutch. So when somebody can go it alone, they're like, they have to find a way to pat down. Yeah. So it's kind of a beautiful anthem too, that she was, she was a woman who chose to live her life by her own design and I definitely carry that part of her spirit in me. And I think that that's really, really kind of beautiful. And and another sort of tribute to her legacy and Mm -hmm. how we were connected. You know, I think for the person who allowed me to be myself first in my life so palpably, I never felt like I had to put on any kind of airs for her or pretend that I didn't do something bad or pretend that I was perfect in any way. I could just be myself. And for that person to also have been guided by this spirit of, of course, people are going to have something to say about you. People always have something to say, especially when they're bored out here in the country and they ain't got (laughs) nothing else to do. (laughs) But I know who I am. Believe in that. And I'm good, actually. And that's, you know, she was, she was awesome in that way. And For that to also just be her song on the record, I think is amazing. Yeah. And obviously she just has had such an impact on you. It sounds like her mother's legacy, like it's just like a family legacy continues on through you and just your way of being. A lot of people, how you're describing your grandmother is how I see you and how I experience you as well. Yes. You and 
Yeah, and your brother. I would say both of you are just... So, Denise, we know you, too. We love you. <laughs> My two people that we really love. Yes. Yeah, it's something, it's something to be proud of. And I do think we all share, my siblings and I, our, our family, just to be proud of who you are. And to and to carry that on, to remember where you came from and who you came from. So it becomes more and more important to you as I'm sure you guys know, especially like now being moms, like as you get older, so much of the stuff becomes really important for you to hold on to. Like I never, I really would have never guessed in a million years that I would have ever made a record like this, actually, to be honest with you. But it feels critically important to sort of carry on her spirit. And I'm definitely of the mind that like, you know, and I guess it's true to a certain extent that like, you know, we share DNA, we do carry these people with us, whether or not they're here anymore, which pieces of her do I choose to carry forward? Kim, don't cry again now. I can't promise that. (laughs) I'm too hormonal to make promises like that. (laughs) You know, it's funny because as you're sharing all of this, I'm looking over your shoulder at the art. Well, both lots of beautiful art behind you. But the one that I am referencing in this moment is your album artwork. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit about how you connected with Brooklyn Dolly, how that piece became the album art? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the funny thing about most societies being male-centered or quote-unquote male-run for so long is that, you know, women, we all know what the real deal is. We all know, like, burdens we've had to bear, all of the burdens you bear as mothers, as caregivers, as community leaders, as the backbones of the families of, and not just of of families, but of whole communities, really. So, and a lot of that comes through in Haiti anyway, a lot of that comes through in our visual art. So Haitian folkloric art, there's this practice of sort of showcasing people, predominantly women, because that's who there, who is there doing the work, but people at work, basically, you know, people in ordinary moments at work in their life. So there are all these beautiful depictions in classic Haitian folkloric art and still Haitian art, folkloric art forms that are still being practiced today that really center women at work, women in the marketplace, women in what we call la coup, which is the yard basically of, of your house, how they're gathered, making meals, grinding corn, sorting through rice and kind of do it, you know, doing laundry at the river, at the riverside or gathering water at the well. There are so much of the artwork that we have depicts and still have depicts women at work. And so I really wanted that. I really wanted to channel that for the album artwork. And I had for a long time been a fan of Erin Robinson, aka Brooklyn Dolly. She has a beautiful, you know, most of her art is centered around a celebration of Black women and girls and showcasing like she was I think she was like depicting black girl magic for a long time before it became a niche thing for people to be talking about black girl magic but I loved her artwork for a really long time and I never knew her personally you know Brooklyn is it's like kind of small so we knew people in common but I never knew her personally and I honestly just sort of blindly reached out to her and I was like, hey, you know, I know we know these people in common, but I just wondered 
if you might, you know, here she is, she's like done like huge portraits for like the Washington Post and like all kinds of fancy things. And I'm like, here I am, like oh, regular stop, old me. Stop it, stop it. <laughs> but I did blindly reach out to her. And at first, you know, I was like, I'm sure she's not going to have time. And I'm sure this is a project that's probably way beneath her, but let's see. And at first, you know, she was a little like, I don't have time. And, you know, it's kind of a short timeline. And then I sent her the record and she was like, you know what? This is really beautiful. I feel like compelled to try to get this done for you. So what do you have in mind? And so I sent her some reference photos of paintings that my parents have at home, paintings that I've just taken pictures of along the way from trips to Haiti, the style of artwork. And what I love about what she did is that she, you know, there's this synergy between what I did with the record, which was take all of these songs and that have many of which have hundreds of years of history in Haiti and presented them in a very me way that was like modernized, but also personalized. And there's this sort of like fusion of old and new that becomes its own thing, which I think, you know, is one of the highest compliments I've gotten about the record, that it just feels unlike anything Mm -hmm. you've heard before, even though you have this deep sense of familiarity with it. And she did that. What you see is this, like, it is a rendition. It's a modern rendition of these women at work. The colors are so beautifully vibrant. It feels super authentic in so many ways for somebody, especially who's not Haitian at all, to really have captured the spirit of that artwork and the spirit of the music on the album itself, you know. She just nailed it. (laughs) She really did. So it's super beautiful. And I got it, a giant one made for my living room, which I absolutely love. And, you know, I'm in love with it. It's, It's a nice thing to sort of be able to walk into your home space and see just like a huge piece of your heart sort of like living there in the room. So I'm grateful for her. It was amazing. And I'm very grateful that I caught her probably at a weak moment. I've been in those weak moments where like, do you have time? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Glad she did because it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It also just shows the this kinship that is very real, I think, amongst women in Haiti, honestly, will always support one another, that we will always work incredibly hard to do right by by ours. You know what I mean? Like we really are supportive and hardworking and committed. And that creates this kind of kinship between us. I love that that is hopefully what comes through on the record. And it's definitely what comes through in her in her artwork here. So it does on both accounts yeah (laughs) thank you natalie for sharing with us one last question tell us your favorite love story my favorite love story recount it just tell us what it is like is it a like a a movie real story okay actually i do know my favorite love story is that is the story of the making of the taj mahal oh we almost did that I, yeah I almost did that one that's a good yeah, one we may do it another time yeah maybe that's not. that's why I'm not married yet because didn't nobody build me a Taj Mahal okay <laughs> gotta die first <laughs> don't, die. don't die don't die yes no that was not an invitation <laughs> 
but yes, I think that's my, I mean, the thought that that, I'm like, that's some real love, man. That's beautiful. (laughs) It's a gorgeous monument for sure. Okay. So yes, I think if I had to pick one off the top of my head, that's up there. I've never seen the Taj Mahal in real life. I would love to. It is on my list. Yeah. We can ever go anywhere. Anybody who's listening that (laughs) wants to do right by Natalie, yeah, take her to the Taj Mahal and get some architectural plans. Yeah. Yeah. Would you settle for just a trip to the Taj Mahal? <laughs> that could work. That could work. I'm not telling you to settle. I'm sorry. But don't, don't settle. Don't, don't settle. But, you know, that's sizable. <laughs> it could work. It could work. You know. But I'll be waiting. I mean, I don't know. You know. <laughs> a girl can dream, right? <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sharing yes, all of you, that. Natalie. And thank you for sharing your music with the world. And, and I'm so glad to see that it was so warmly received, not only probably just by listeners and people in Haiti, wherever, and like also even on a much on this huge public platform of the Grammys was just phenomenal. And Crushers, you listen to Natalie's beautiful music every time you tune in and listen because she's our theme song composer. Maybe some of my greatest work yet. I'm just saying. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. And so we look forward to what comes. I love that you were like, oh, my next album. Sadly, you did not walk away with a golden statue at the Grammys. Carly was, it's okay, she'll win one next year. She will. It matter because she looked so good. Oh okay. my gosh, smoking. If yeah. you're gonna lose, <laughs> look good doing it, friend. Right. You cannot be nominated and present and look like you and even put the word lose yeah, anywhere. No there won. was zero losing. There was zero. It was red hot winning. We love you. Love you. Wow. It's it's so good. She's so good. I love her. Thanks, Natalie, for Thank being you. our friend. Sharing that beautiful. Yes. Doing our theme music, sharing your story, sharing your art and your culture with the world. It's amazing. Being an inspiration and a beautiful human being. Yeah. Okay. So after after you know, the, the theme is home is where the heart is. We knew that Natalie was going to be talking a lot about her cultural heritage, her grandmother, and how this was a big part of her influence and her inspiration for her album, Grammy-nominated album, No yeah. Small Shakes. Just have to keep throwing the accolades her way. And it really had me thinking about what does home mean and how that can mean so many different things to so many different people. And so I started kind of going through a internet rabbit hole, as one does, and by one I mean me, <laughs> around what does this mean to have to be home and to, to go home? And so, you know, home is it's more than just a house. It's more than a physical structure or a place that we live. And for many, home embodies a sense of belonging. So it's where you might feel safe or understood by someone, where you might identify a place or even a group of people like feeling like home. And for others, defining home might even be a way to identify themselves and offer distinction from others. For example, like, you know, when we when we meet people, we might say, where are you from? Where's home for you? Susan Clayton, who's an environmental psychologist, suggests that the, this, like, identifying yourself as a distinction from others suggests that that's one of the reasons why we also decorate our homes and we landscape as a way to express our individualism, which is very much like, you know, a more westernized 
concept. But our homes, at least for many Westerners, really help define who who we are, right? Like how our decorating style are like, you know, even sometimes we see this as an extension of like, what kind of cars we drive and how that can be a part of our identity. Memories are also frequently cued by physical environments. And memories of childhood or traditions or attachments to places can also support this concept of home. And there's a lot of variations of the meaning of home based on culture. So in the Western world, home belongs to me. It's like we we own home. <laughs> Whereas your psychology, your consciousness, that subjectivity doesn't really depend on where you live because it's more about like where you are. Now that's home. That tends to be a little bit more of that Western idea. But there's also a lot of different cultural ideas around what does home mean. So on the coast of Northern Australia, there's this place called Batworth Island, and there's a indigenous individuals a group called the Tiwi. And they believe that their island was the only inhabitable place in the world. Then you have the Zuni, which are Native American people in the southwest of the U.S., and they believe that home is a living place, so to be attended to. Whereas in many South Asian communities, home isn't just where you are, it is who you are. And there's a really deep attachment to that environment. So there are all of these different kinds of variations of what home might mean. So thinking about where and what home is reminded me of kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Are you familiar at all with this concept? I am a little bit, yes. I'm going to give everyone a real quick Psych 101 lesson. This is a theory. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a theory of human behavioral motivation. And it's illustrated by this triangle. Now think of a triangle and it's divided by five horizontal levels. And each level, you have to kind of satisfy the needs from the bottom to move on up to the next level. And truthfully, nowadays, scholars kind of view that as levels overlapping that's not so distinct or discrete. And the base is the largest, most fundamental need. That's shelter, food, water, air. I've got a great graphic that I will share with everyone when, when this story goes live. There's a whole concept of how Maslow's hierarchy of needs relates to housing. Again, the, the first one, physiological needs. And the housing implications are we need a shelter. That housing can be anything. It can be storage. It can be preparation. It can be an eating space for food. And it's basically like, does your location, you know, proximity to food and water, like, can I sustain myself living here? Then the next level, so that's the bottom. Bottom is physiological needs. Next level, safety and security. And safety and security needs are really met when an individual feels safe from danger and harm. And knowing that you can be taken care of no matter what. And so I think even as I present each of these kind of levels, it's kind of interesting to think about maybe, I know for me, I was reflecting on what does that mean to be safe and secure? And what does that mean? I mean, I'm a parent. So I think about how do I provide that even for my family? Sure. Especially like when we have families feel very privileged, very lucky to have like a, you know, a safe home, have that security. Like we know we, we own our home. Um, but like I was thinking about how, when I used to be a renter and you never know, 
are, is your lease not going to be renewed, right? Or like, is your rent going to go crazy up? Or when we all lived in New York City and there was Hurricane Sandy and there was crazy issues with people being displaced. So there's that can the sense of home can frequently be like shifted beyond like basic needs to kind of moving up this triangle of what does this space mean for you? The next, I guess you could say the middle level of the hierarchy of needs is love and belonging. And that's just basically saying like individuals need to be loved and have a sense of belonging. We have a biological underpinning to connect with others. And does home offer that to us? People want to be loved and they want to be ex- accepted and they want to be supported by others. And I think that's an interesting concept too, because right, we could have the most safe and secure house could be close to food and water. It could be, you know, we could have all those things. But if it doesn't feel the people in that house or that space accept who we are and love us for who we are, it's not going to feel like home. And so that's also, I think, sometimes when we see people leaving their place of origin and like finding more of what we would call maybe your chosen family. The next, the fourth level is esteem. And esteem are the needs that are the basis for a kind of human desire we all have to be accepted and valued by others. And so, again, this is kind of like an individual's home can tell us a lot about who that person is. An attractive home might be clean and organized. And like, how do you take care of your house? You're like, clean house, clean mind. (laughs) Sure. Oh, this always reminds me of like college. Like, do you have a bed sheet nailed across your window? (laughs) And that is your permanent (laughs) window dressing. (laughs) Or did did you go out in it like at least buy the paper blinds? People, they're so cheap. Just go that way. That's my unsolicited decorating advice. Boyfriends in college, do you have sheets on your bed and a pillowcase on your pillow? Yeah, that you've washed. It doesn't have to be expensive. It's more about like, are you taking care of your physical space? Are you putting time and effort right. into it? Right. Um, and yeah. so that's kind of the esteem place. It's not about like the money you're throwing at it. I mean, it's the same thing about like, you know, physical grooming. You don't have to have name brand everything at all. But like, are you getting up every day and like washing your face and brushing your teeth and hygiene? But like hygiene for your yeah. home. That's esteem. And then last, the top of the pyramid. This is the important part. Um, well, no, nah, nah, I take it all back. It's all important. But this is they're the part, important. they're all important. This is what, according to Maslow's, this is our motivation. This is what we are trying to achieve, which is self-actualization. And in truth be told, I, I really take back what I said. They're all important because you cannot reach self-actualization if all these other needs are not met. If you don't have a safe place you know, to like lay your head and like to know that you can go to sleep at night or prepare your food and your belongings are safe and secure, you're not going to reach self-actualization. So I I really take that back. All those other pieces are truly are important. And self-actualization is what happens when we reach our, our full potential. All the boxes are checked. And really to like reach this last level, we're looking at like spontaneity and creativity, morality, and individuals really have to have all the other needs met. One can't advance without like hitting all the other pieces. And so as far as housing implications go, this is a place where you can go to really kind of become your most capable self. 
This is where you feel like you can reach your full potential, which makes sense, right? Like if you're, let me say this to my clients, some of people in my personal life, if you're exhausted, you're not going to be your best self. If you're hungry, I, I mean, for me, I get super hangry. Like if I'm hungry, I cannot satisfy, I cannot be my full potential. Because do not mess with Kim when she is hungry. Do not mess with her. You'll get a shameful finger wag. I always have snacks with me. I've learned this about me. So... Yeah. So to reach that, you kind of have to hit all these other pieces. Do you feel like you are safe? And I mean, that makes sense too. Cause think about like, if you don't feel like you are in a place where you are accepted or you belong, like think about how insecure you might feel or how defensive. And that's not going to allow you to be, it's going to have you moving from a place of fear, not a place of love. You're not going to be hitting your full potential. So it's not necessarily a lofty goal, but it does allow us if we were looking at like, oh, how do we reach our full potential? And how do we be our best version of ourselves? A lot of these other needs have to be met first. And that's all encapsulated by Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And shout out to whomever did this graphic, which was super helpful for this story. I actually can't find a credit for it. But again, I will I will post it with a link. So you all can look at it yourself. And that's kind of how I interpreted Home is Where the Heart is today. I think that was a nice interpretation. I enjoyed listening to it. Thank you. It was kind of a little more psychologically based than some of the other stories I do, but I, I enjoyed looking at it from that level. I like the variety. Variety. Spice of life. Where does that fall on Maslow's hierarchy of needs? <laughs> the creativity. So, Miss Marion. Yeah. Tell me, if you would, what are you crushing on? I am crushing on getting to a place where my daughters are successfully weaning. Mm. Sorry, this is TMI, guys, but it's true. It's the biggest, no, it's fantastic, triumphant moment of this week. It's really hard. Weaning twins is really hard, but it's working. It's going all right, and uh, we're cruising right along. And also, I actually think it's the perfect time because. They can really allow me to read a small book from <gasps> a book? start to finish. Woo -woo. Yeah. Um, and actually, they want me to read it at least a second time and often a third time. Oh, it's a read. child's um, book. I thought you were reading for your own pleasure. Oh, no, 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 no. They, I could never read a whole book to them. Uh, um, got it. They would always rip it out of my hands or one of them would want to hold it or something. You know, it was never possible for me to get both girls to let me read a whole story to them together, which is kind of critical for bedtime because I do everything with both of them at the same time, mm. which all you twin moms out there, you do things however it works for you because God knows you got to just do it. But for me, it's critical that they do everything as far as like bedtime routine is concerned. They get a lot of individual attention and other things during other times. But during like critical moments, getting them to sleep, getting them to nap, they have to do it together because it's just impossible for me to do it separately. So it's working really well that weaning and I recommend this if you are somebody who's interested in breastfeeding. I, I think uh, weaning once they have the ability to hold a, their attention into a short story is a good one because mm. I've been able to use that as a placeholder for, for breastfeeding. You mm. know, we cuddle and we read a book. Yeah, reading and greeting is just I, – I, I love reading to babies and to mm -hmm. kids in general. Me too. It's pretty sweet. What are you crushing on this week, Kim? Well, first, I just want to say congratulations. That's a confluence of factors oh, um, and kudos and good job, kiddos. And I'm glad you're enjoying reading books and as a placeholder. It's fantastic. Sorry, I just had to acknowledge that. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that. 
the, I'm crushing on a cartoon on Netflix. So a little bit about me. I'm not a big cartoon person. Yes, Simpsons, but like I, and I appreciate and, and I think it's great that there's these fantastic mature adult cartoons out there like Bob's Burgers and stuff. That's just, it, that's not so much for me as, as much as not usually what kind of like is my go to television entertainment. However, there is a TV show that I forgot how much I loved and then I found it again on Netflix and there's tons more seasons out, which is Big Mouth. Have you ever watched Big Mouth? Yeah, I was just going to say, have you watched Big Mouth? Because that's the one that I it's love. I love Big Mouth. fucking yeah. hilarious. Nick Kroll. I love Big Mouth. I don't know why yeah, I was Nick so... Hysterical. Oh my gosh. Why was I so slow to warm to him? He's hilarious. He's a freaking and genius. Maya Rudolph is on it. I, 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 oh, yeah. I'll take anything you're in, Maya Rudolph. Anything you do, I love it. Yes. <laughs> and John Mulaney. There's just... There's a real... Yeah, John Mulaney is great, So too. many great... My husband watches a lot of uh, Rick and Morty recently, and I've been watching that with him. And I do, which I enjoy, another uh, kind of like adult cartoon. Chris Parnell's in there. I just love Chris Parnell's voice. Every time I hear it, for some reason, it just makes me smile. <laughs> so I guess he that's a double, a, great voice. a double crush on some really good comedians. I did notice that there were new episodes of Big Mouth too, and I was super excited about it because I absolutely blew through it. I really liked it. It was like exactly what I needed. Yes, when. It came out. Yes. Well, I I blew through the first season. And then I guess I don't know what yeah. happened. I like somehow, I don't know, fell into a coma of sorts. And it missed it. All of a sudden, I think there's four seasons now, right? Yeah. Which is amazing. It's so much, so much to binge. I love it. But the hormone monsters, I can't get enough of. They're freaking hilarious. Yeah, it's great. If you are into so that funny. kind of thing, check it Did out. Did you know that Maya Rudolph has a Prince? Did you know that she has a Prince cover band? What? No. Yeah. That is amazing. Oh, does she tour? I think she does. I think they're called the Raspberry Berets or something. <gasps> like that. I don't know. Don't quote me on that, but she's awesome. I'm going to go look that up. And when COVID is over and if she is touring and it is anywhere near us, can we please commit to that? Yes. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Thank I will you. Do that with you for sure. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, that oh, I'm already 100%. planning the um, outfit I have I for this imaginary I night out. <laughs> like, yes, this is going to be so fun. We're going to get so drunk. <laughs> you have to have like a signature cocktail at a at a prince <laughs> a prince cover band, especially if that's what you're. We're not going to get that drunk. So drunk for me means like so not drunk, but at this point in time, yeah, <laughs> I mean, different from what it meant before. I can't even. I'm going to have about. two drinks. Two. <laughs> Space out over a large period of time with a lot of water in between. <laughs> Get wild. Woo woo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I Let me tell you, all you need to do to really suck the fun out of any kind of recreational drinking is to work as a substance abuse counselor where you assess other people's high-risk drinking. <laughs> Not just... Yeah, or just spend one... Morning Sucks. hungover with two babies. Oh, well, that too. Days. Yeah. Put those together. You are the life of the party, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad I'm glad you already know about the wonder that is uh, Big Mouth and, and can also share and appreciate the joy that it, it's just ridiculous and it's raunchy. And I'm going to watch it today. I'm going to watch it today. Yeah. I think I probably will too. It's just, I love it. So dear listeners, if you have watched it yet, I highly, I highly encourage you to try it. Good crush, Kim. Thanks. Same. It runs a gamut here. What are you guys crushing on? Tell us, please. Yeah, tell us. Text us. 
You can't text us. Email us. <laughs> Wouldn't it be creepy if it's like, so... I'm crushing on... The fact I got your number. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, we do have a lot of friends that listen. Thank you, friends. And you guys yeah. have our phone numbers. Friends, text us what you're crushing on. Everyone else, you can slide into our DMs or... Email us, DM us. Courier pigeons, a totally acceptable option as well. Please share your stories. I need some more hits of that dopamine from hearing all your love stories. We have a couple coming your way this season. We got Patreon happening. Shout out to Eric the Red, who is a Patreon supporter of More Than a Crush podcast. He's a new one. Thank you, Eric. We're gonna we're gonna start you calling you all out. <laughs> you sound like a really great guy. If only I knew him better. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we have some merch coming your way. We're working on the website. We're doing some ads. Yeah. I don't know if we need to tell people that. Okay. <laughs> Love you. Oh, shut up now. <laughs> don't. Don't. Thanks for tuning in. You've heard from us and we'd love to hear from you. Do you have a love story to share? Looking for some advice of the love variety? Reach out on email. More than a crush podcast at gmail.com and find us on Instagram. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Special thank you to Natalie Joachim, who composed our theme music. We're so appreciative, Natalie. Thank you. We love you.